Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 241, and we're going to be interviewing Sang. How are you doing today, Sang? Good. Thank you for having me, Jim. I'm excited to have you here. Um, so, you ready to do this? I am. Shoot. All right. First question I ask everybody. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. <clears throat> okay. Um, I grew up a little hippie kid on the west coast of Canada in a fairly supported environment, um, very much a takes a whole village sort of thing. Um, I was around uh, marijuana, but not really alcohol, not really hard drugs. Um, but it was a very open-minded um, atmosphere. My dad did sell pot and it was a very, weed was a very different thing back in that early late 70s early 80s right um it was very much us against the straight world I guess um I was an overachiever my parents split up when I was seven and that's probably where my you know 80s child of divorce stereotype oh <laughs> um, I was there my, my original my... yeah well actually no my parents got divorced in 1990 so I'm a year off from the 80s. But I think yeah, it was, it was... I was seven, so 1983. But it was it was very much the catalyst, I think, um, for my uh, desire to find something to fill that hole in me. I can uh, I can kind of feel you with that. I also felt like I was looking for always like a. A family atmosphere to be in, like another friend's family atmosphere. That's a that's an interesting point. I had that a lot. My mom I, was a youth counselor, and she worked with a lot of kids who had come from a lot of trauma. She worked in group homes and worked with street kids and stuff like that. And she always had a really good relationship with these kids that were and teenagers that were struggling and I was an overachiever and a part of me looks back and goes did I seek out being a bit of a mess in order to have a better relationship with my mom <laughs> because mm -hmm. she certainly seemed to get along with these these troubled kids <laughs> yeah but <not> me. <laughs> could be a subconscious thing yep um yeah. when I was um, I, I went to elementary school on my little island, but then we had to um, transfer each day to um, a city of about 150,000 people when I was in high school. And so, like you said about other people, other families, I spent my weekends at other people's houses always because I wasn't coming back to the little island like when I was a teenager. Um, and so it was a lot easier for me to get away with partying and doing whatever I wanted especially because I was an overachiever <clears throat> so I was trusted to yeah. uh, do whatever I wanted right this is true a good student people don't think you're going to do anything wrong yeah I think I I started do you want to know like my my substance use history when it started oh of course let's hear it so I, I started probably I remember being very, my rebellious was being very against smoking and marijuana and stuff. And then it like, it was all that draw the line and then cross it, draw the line in the sand of what you'll never do and then cross it. So when I was 12, I started 
um, smoking pot. By the time I was 14, I was smoking cigarettes. Um, I'm 13. Real quick, real quick, you said you smoked pot for the first time at 12. Who did you get it from and who did you do it with? I, I stole it from my dad. Okay. Um, but um, probably my friends. I remember that I was getting people to like me, especially boys, by giving them pot. Um, by being the girl who had access to marijuana and, you the know, cool yeah, kind of buying my friends, even though it was unnecessary. I had lots of friends, but I had this desire, as I still do, to to be really liked and to make other people happy. So the thing is, is I've always been allergic to THC, so it wasn't fun. <laughs> it was what, what, what does it do to you being allergic to it, what um, kind of it makes it me feel like makes me feel like there's a vice on my head like squishing my head really oh, hard but i'm really tiny and right in the middle and my forehead is like really far away um i get nauseous um i get dizzy um like just a couple of tokes and i'll be like don't touch me don't move me for like six hours um and um and then I get, I get paranoid and it's, it's absolutely horrible. My partner still partakes contact high. And I start to go into that same anxiety and that same nausea and stuff. Um, and I have to make a conscious point not to pay attention to it, not to analyze it or try and work my way out of it mentally. Cause it will get worse. So um, I, I avoid that I've been, I have mental health issues that have people have said, Oh, this will really help you. Like THC will really help you. There's no way I wouldn't even try it. My mind is way too fragile. Now I have, I've been surrounded by THC my whole life, but it just doesn't agree with me. It was the beginning. And then I, um, I remember drinking alcohol. I stole a couple of bottles of red wine that I'm supposed to give to my mom for my grandpa on Christmas. And I stole it and drank it. I made myself extremely sick on like New Year's Eve with friends and my brother, my older brother. And I threw up in my shoes. My dad laughed at me the next day. <laughs> um, shoes. Oh yeah, it was it was horrible. And alcohol was never really my thing either. So I kind of became the when I was like 16, I became the designated driver for all my friends that drank. So my first DOC were hallucinogens. So a lot of LSD and um mushrooms um and that sort of thing. That was my my teenage years was a whole lot of mind expanding type type things until I found raving when I was like 18 and it was the mid nineties. Um, and that became my entire world. Mostly I think because I wanted to be with these amazing people that like, I went from a very small community to a little bit bigger community. And when you're in a small community, you're friends with the people that are around you. And then in a little bigger, bit bigger one, it was teenager. So it was all about, you know, being popular and figuring out kind of who you were. And then I went to college to do uh, my bachelor of fine arts for theater. And I think I ended up getting separated from everybody in that little clique after my first year because I was 
still partaking in substances they weren't mostly LSD and stuff and I dropped out in my second year and started raving full-time in Vancouver and when I started it was the same thing I had this this big I was just doing ecstasy um and I had this and and hallucinogens ecstasy and mushrooms or ecstasy and LSD and I had this line in the sand and this big judgment towards people that used methamphetamine which back then was called jib so real quick um, when you yeah. say <clears throat> you say you raved full time like where did you get money from yourself to like actually go out and party well um so if you're doing something full time like that you get in free to everything that you do okay. because you're part of you're part of like the crew that has to be there in order for it to happen so when we went from like club night to club night to club club night to after party to dj's house to club night to after party like all week long and then the weekends you were at the rave all night and the after party all day the next day and then the rave it was it was all we did um so in the in the beginning i actually like i said i was a bit of an overachiever so i managed um pizza places um, i had jobs um but they quickly um i lost them because I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, keep up my life when I was partying nonstop instead. Um, so as far as um, like my admission fees and stuff like that, um, I, that was all, everything, it was all free. And as far as the <clears throat> drugs, um, at that time, I, it didn't cost very much because I only needed to do a little tiny bit and speed was sort of like new and it was like $10 a day. It was like nothing, nothing, nowhere near the $500 a day. It became in the end. <laughs> but at that point it was like $10 a day. It was nothing. I think I probably went on social assistance um, for a while at some point briefly. Um, and then I started, um, then I started selling drugs um and selling ecstasy mostly and even at that point it was like I somehow thought it was like okay to sell ecstasy but not okay to sell meth like now I am firmly of the belief that it's all the same shit well probably because I was in such a big crowd of people that were like in the rave scene there was there was you know there was thousands of us and um I think actually like other than being like the middleman because somebody wanted something my friends became my whole world my friends were I was with 24 hours a day um and I remember I I was pretty um I don't want to say delusional because those were when I my brain started to break down years later but I was um like magical grandiose type thinking of um you know, rising in the rave scene with status and um, who you were and what you could, where, what you could get in, where you could get in and, you know, where your, what your position was like in a hierarchy sort of thing. And, and I was also the magical thinking part. I remember I got, um, I met a raver from the United States um, and we got engaged, like, like we didn't even know each other. And we were both really high on a lot of ecstasy and we asked each other to marry each other, which was just ridiculous. Um, and he was from the United States. He was in the Coast Guard in the States. And um, I remember 
going down. It was much different. It was before 9-11. So Canadians could easily go to the U.S. without a passport or like you just basically were like, this is where we're going. And you drove through the border like it was easy peasy. It was totally different than it is today. Um, so I started going down to California and um, sometimes driving back, sometimes flying back with like ounces of MDMA in my underwear. Um, and I don't, there's no way I would ever do anything like that now. I don't know what I was thinking. I was sewing substances into my clothing and stuff. How did MDMA come? I, what is it? How is it packaged? Um, well, it was either yeah. in a powder that we were, we were putting into caplets ourselves, um, or it was coming in press tabs, but I also knew people that were like had pill machines. I knew people that made it basically. Okay. Um, and we started, we had chemists that we worked with. So we had GHB and all sorts of basically, you name it, we were doing it, except we still had a line in the sand about cocaine and heroin and you know we still had this oh it's okay because we're doing this and not this that's hardcore but this is acceptable right which is but that's how you get through it at the time so um I did that for 96 97 98 um and lived a pretty pretty dangerous life I I I suppose I was taking a lot of risks um, and I, I, I didn't really question it. I think that I did find a time when I, I tried to straighten out because I had started using meth um, and it was really affecting me. I was under 100 pounds um, and I, I talk a lot. I'm a chatterbox. I babble. And I couldn't speak. Um, I became the socially, it wasn't, the reason I got into it in the first place was because I enjoyed being with my friends so much and I just wanted to dance all night long and be with my friends and socialize and party constantly, right? But the um, amphetamines had the, and ketamine and a bunch of stuff had the effect on me that I, it disconnected me from the music. So I couldn't feel the music. So I stopped dancing as much and um, I couldn't, I started getting paranoid. And I think at the time I remember seeing a drug counselor or something. And I remember um, I was working with a organization in Vancouver um, that did education for substances. And it was just say no, like K-N-O-W instead of no and in other words it was about like know what you're doing and then I, I guess I justified or rationalized or you know um I made excuses for oh it's okay that I'm doing this because I I'm learning all about it and I know about everything I'm, I'm getting involved in I still didn't understand though the long-term effects I I understood the short-term effects of things but I wasn't being realistic about what I was doing to myself long-term um I had already um, dropped out of college. I had already disconnected from my family. Like I was losing all of those pieces of me. Um, but I was so wrapped up in it. I was so starry eyed from, you know, being on the top of a drug scene sort of thing and being exclusive and, you know, all this glitz and glam stuff that I fooled myself into thinking, you know, I wasn't hurting myself that badly. 
Um, but the amphetamine started to really take a toll on my mental health. And even the MDMA, I was take, eating it just to be in a good mood. So I was controlling my emotions with it on a, on a daily basis. Um, and I remember feeling like I had just such bursts of like dopamine and, and um, um, oxytocin and all these things that, that um, MDMA like triggers in your brain chemistry and stuff that like when I would come down, there was like, there was none of that left. So even though it wasn't addictive um, as far as like going through withdrawal and like this sort of thing does like other um, like, you know, heroin and cocaine and stuff does, it definitely had an emotional grip on me. Um, and then the, the, the two of them together, I mean, it was, it was destroying me and breaking me down. <clears throat> I tried to quit methamphetamine and I remember doing, um, I came home for a little while with my, um, I wasn't engaged anymore, by the way, that only lasted two weeks, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I still went down and connected to his contacts and picked up these large amounts of things and brought them back across the border. And, you know, which was crazy. I remember coming through the border one day and they had drug dogs. And um, I remember thinking to myself, well, I know because MDMA was so new that methamphetamine would have would have been smelled by these dogs, but MDMA wasn't. They weren't trained for that. And I remember thinking, I know that what I have is good and clean and pure if these dogs don't smell it and they didn't smell it and they they took like in the border in the uh, customs they remember they took these little gauze things and they wiped them over all my cards and everything in my wallet and with the 90s and it was raving so I had these super fat pants on that like you couldn't even see my shoes and I had these ziplocs of MDMA in my underwear and they were they were testing all my cards and everything. And I had my hands deep in my pockets and I was trying to like push the Ziplocs like inside of my body, which I didn't do. But I remember when we got out, when they let us out, the person I was with had snuck into Disneyland at some point or something like that. So they didn't want to let him across the border. And they focused on like that instead. And I remember when I got through, I burst out laughing and it wasn't because I thought it was funny. I was just so relieved because in my head, I was like, I'm either going to a party right now as in like a rave and having a really good time and being like the, the queen of the party, or I'm going to jail for years and years. So the release, the relief of getting like through that customs and that checkpoint was this huge rush in itself, but it kind of, I was also so paranoid because of the amphetamines I was doing that I remember for a week after that, I couldn't relax because I was convinced that somebody had followed us uh, followed us home from the airport, right? It, it was a, a very strange time. Um, but I fell in love for real, not with some person that um, I did this crazed drug thing with, but I remember I fell in love for real and after about a year, he decided that um, he couldn't handle one day. Okay, one day I walked in, he walked into my apartment or I walked into our apartment and he was about to smoke meth and he didn't do meth. And I did really love him. And I took it out of his hands and I flushed it all down the toilet. I said, there's not a chance I'm letting you do that. I know how this drug destroys. And he had like a full-time job and was really successful. And he was everything to me. And 
he said, well, I want to know why you're so like hard to deal with why you're like psychologically I couldn't speak and I was like when I was tweaking out and sketching out he said I want to understand that so either we both do it or neither of us does it and I don't think I was ready to quite give it up but there was no way I was letting him do it so he left me and when he left me that was my excuse or my catalyst for really going downhill at that time I was managing a little Caesars in Vancouver and I had a friend who um I cried I sobbed for a month and I couldn't stop crying and I couldn't I couldn't function at all and he said well I have something that will help you stop crying why don't you try doing heroin and the first time that I did it, actually, it wasn't the first time I did it. I had done it once before, way back in the story that I stopped talking about, sorry, earlier, where I said that I stopped doing meth for a little while. Um, in 1997, I had stopped for a while with my then partner. And I um, did, I snorted a little tiny bit of heroin to try to go to sleep because the sleep deprivation was really what made me really crazy. Um, it made me agoraphobic and so I couldn't leave my house and um, well, I was just terrified all the time so I remember I snorted this little tiny bit of heroin like this tiniest bit to go to sleep so that I wasn't up for six seven days because at that time when I was doing meth and ecstasy then I was only sleeping once a week I was up for six seven days every time and it was making me insane so I snort this little tiny line and um what happened was my roommate came in the room and I was blue and naked I stripped off all my clothes and I was blue and she freaked out and called a friend even though we only lived a couple blocks from a hospital she called a friend and that friend drove all the way across the city picked me up and drove me to Vancouver Regional which was quite far from where we were and when I got there they said she doesn't have any vitals. So that was the first time I overdosed. And it wasn't simply a Narcan situation. They had to restart my heart because I really was completely gone. Um, so they had to shock me, like defibrillate me alive and use Narcan. Um, and that was traumatic for me. When I woke up, the first thing I heard, I didn't see anything. My eyes were closed and they had tied my wrists and my ankles so that I didn't hurt myself when I came to, like with zap straps. And um, I, I couldn't move. So I thought that I was paralyzed and I had been in a car accident. That was my first thought because my eyes weren't open yet. I could just hear them calling my name from far away. And they said, do you know where you are? You're in the hospital and stuff. And um, I started crying and then I realized that I wasn't paralyzed and I hadn't been in a car accident and I so slowly was like okay wait a minute I was in my bed I was at home what's happening and when I re realized what had happened I was pretty traumatized and I didn't touch I did pretty well for the next year and that's when I said I fell in love with someone and um, but I started using meth again and he couldn't handle that at all or handle what I was like when I was on it and he made me choose and I made the wrong choice, really made the wrong choice and kind of punished myself for it for the next decade. Um, but when he left um, in the beginning, end of 88, beginning of 99, 
um, my friend that was staying with me, I was living by myself. And my friend said, this will make you stop crying. And it did. It wasn't this incredible feeling, but what it was, was as opioids are, it was a painkiller and my heart didn't hurt anymore. I, it didn't feel euphoric. It just felt like an absence of the extreme pain that I was in um, emotionally. And um, so that be, it wasn't a matter of, I thought at the time that I was um, making the pain go away. But of course I, I learned I wasn't. All I was doing was repressing the pain so that every single time that I managed to try to stop using heroin, um, I was dealing with pain that was no longer connected to certain situations and certain incidents. Um, I, which find is a like lot of this, I find a lot of us addicts are trying to numb ourselves. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's and if you if it's you're trying to numb something that you don't you no longer even know like that's what trauma is right you no longer it's it's in your cells and you no longer know what this pain is or what it's connected to so in the beginning if i had properly dealt with that relationship and that pain at the time it probably would have been a lot easier for me to deal with because years later it was just an ache it wasn't something that i could um sit and work out right because it wasn't connected to anything anymore um, I just was extremely lonely and in, and in a lot of pain every time I tried to stop. And then, of course, that was like compounded by everything that happened to me in the interim, right? Um, I was managing a pizza place and I was doing I was doing heroin every day. And I remember deciding that it was time to stop. Um, I was stealing from work to pay for it. I was the manager. So what I would do was. Um, I had two deposits I had to go in a day and I was one deposit behind. So at night I was actually putting in the morning's deposit. And in the morning I was putting in the night's deposit and the deposit was a few thousand dollars, but I was taking like a hundred dollars from it every day. So it was getting like smaller and smaller and smaller and they were sort of none the wiser. Um, but then one night I was, I think the people that worked under me thought I was bulimic because I was super I mean, who knows what they thought, but that's what it seemed like because I was super skinny and I was always in the bathroom throwing up um, because that's what, that's what uh, opioids do, opiates do um, in the beginning anyway. Uh, part of it is they make you throw up. You don't really care, but they do. So I was always in the bathroom doing that and I was super skinny and I didn't, I didn't, I was pretty unhealthy, uh, like physically unhealthy. And one night I was busy in the bathroom after clothes and I had the deposit sitting on the table with my purse and I left the doors open and it was like three o'clock in the morning. We had closed at two and somebody stole it and all of it, my purse, the deposit, everything. Um, and when I told the, the um, um, head, my head of my district or whatever for Little Caesars, they suspended me for a week for poor cash management. The good thing is, though, I didn't get charged with theft. I just got suspended for poor cash management because I got robbed because I left the doors unlocked, right? Um, so I thought I could go to detox. They thought, oh, I'll go to detox and I'll detox for this week that um, I'm suspended and, and then I'll be all better in a week. No idea. You got to understand also, this is like before the opioid crisis. 
and it was in like 99. It was before the opioid crisis and the internet was way different than it is now, of course. We didn't have smartphones. We had flip phones, but we didn't have smartphones. And like, you do, in other words, we didn't have access to the same sort of um, information that we do now. We weren't all, it wasn't easy to find other people that were in these and watch little TikTok videos and podcasts and all this stuff of like people oh, going I, through this, right? I grew up 30 years ago. Yeah, exactly, right? So I was under the impression that heroin took seven to 10 days. And then, you know, you just like, you went through withdrawal and it was horrible, but then you were better. And that's what I thought was going to happen. Uh, it was not. Um, I went to detox in Vancouver and I was there, I don't know, as soon as the actual withdrawal hit me, because I'd had access to cash. So I hadn't, you know, I'd probably been addicted, wired to it for six months or something like that. And I had access to money. So I, I hadn't really experienced what it was really like to go through withdrawal. And when I did, um, I didn't, I don't think I even got to the physical part of it before the mental aspect. Um, it was too hard for me. I called, I called somebody and they came and brought me something and that was it. So I knew there was no way I was going to be able to do it on my own. I just left detox after 24 hours. So I went home and I called my family and I said, hi, um, I'm still using drugs. And by the way, I'm using heroin now. And by the way, I've started mainlining it. I've started using needles. Um, and they came and got me and packed up my dad and my stepmom came and got me. They packed up my entire apartment in one day, everything that could fit into the van. That was it. The rest was gone. They just basically freaked out, came and got me and brought me back to this little island where mm -hmm. once I was in withdrawal, there was nothing I could do. There was no one I could call. There was, I wasn't going to get out and run nine kilometers, which is however many miles. It just wasn't happening, right? To get on a ferry to go to, like, it just wasn't. <laughs> it was probably the best place to do it because once I couldn't move and once I was really sick, there was, you know, I there was no way to turn back. It took a month before I could walk on my own. It wasn't seven to 10 days. I was so malnourished. Um, I'm five foot seven. I was 92 pounds or something like that. Oh my God. Um, yeah, I was really sick. I had ulcers. Um, and I was, I was really, really, it was, it was absolutely hell. <laughs> It's, it's not something I have ever been able to actually do again. And I will say I've been on methadone for 21 years and I'm almost off of it. Um, but it was not something I think I ever had the guts to do again because it literally took a month before I could walk from like one end of my parents' property to the other, which was about five acres. Um, it's It was, and I know that it's, it's in my experience from talking to other people and you know, I've known thousands of addicts and it really is. It's not just different for everybody. It's different based on like each time as well on on how healthy you are at the time. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of different contributing factors, but it can be seven to 10 days. But, you know, for me, it really wasn't. It was a month before I could walk. And then stupidly, as soon as I could walk, what do you think I did? I managed to get my way to Nanaimo and use again. Um, that next year, the year 2000 was my year of rehab.
So my parents, I don't come from a lot of money, come from a working class background. And my parents basically pulled out their um, RRSPs. I don't know what happens in the United States, but it's basically a registered retirement savings plan. So you put money in and you can't access it for a certain into the bank and you can't access it for a certain amount of years until it matures, right? So they, you can pull them out um, early or whatever, but you lose a bunch. Anyway, this is what my parents had to do in order to get enough money to go to rehab. And I think at that time, it wasn't 90 days. It was only 30 days. And it was about $10,000. Um, I wasn't, there wasn't anything public. You had to be on social assistance, which I wasn't. Um, and they didn't have like things in place. It wasn't common for the place you worked for to send you to rehab and stuff at that time. And I went to confrontational recovery. I think between um, my uh, employment insurance money and my dad and my mom and everybody pooled everything they had and I went um, and I got kicked out a couple of days before it ended because it was co-ed and you weren't allowed to be with other people there was 60 people in there and I think like out me and someone else kissed and I admitted it and they kicked which is so stupid but I spent I was pretty determined to do well um I went to day treatment after that and then I went back to that same recovery center but it definitely wasn't some the kind of rehab that I would suggest to anybody that was broken like I was it was very confrontational it wasn't supportive recovery um uh, and I don't I don't you know think it was not very many people they said they had an 80% success rate but part of the 80% success was as long as you followed their aftercare plan and part of their aftercare plan was that you didn't use drugs or alcohol so it doesn't really make sense right but I know that people got kicked out or quit every single day and um the second time that I went a girl's boyfriend brought in heroin and I used it and we got kicked out for that the third time I went to rehab um I went to and back then it was a lot easier to get in like the first time you had to have 30 days clean and then that was it there wasn't this there wasn't this huge waiting list even when I went to government funded so by January we had run out of I'd already been to private treatment twice and um, not only could my family not afford to send me again but they didn't believe that there was a point in doing it right why would I give up all of my savings for my child who has proven more than once that this isn't something she's serious about right? Um, it, my family was still somewhat supportive of me at that point. They hadn't quite um, had to separate themselves yet. Um, but we really, I have to say, we didn't really know what we were up against. Um, I got the educational side of treatment. Those, those two, the day treatment and the two residential stints, because my thing seemed to be getting myself kicked out like a week before I was supposed to graduate. I think actually the first one was not 30 days. It was six to seven weeks was what it was. And I got kicked out in the sixth week. And then the second time I got kicked out in about five and a half to six weeks. Um, day treatment was 30 days. Um, and then I went to government funded. I went on social assistance because I obviously wasn't working and I couldn't fund anything I was doing um and if you were on social assistance you could go to like um government funded treatment rehab and that was way better in my opinion for 
who I was and where I was. I think the other one was more for when you had this ego of um, uh, like being a doctor, an actor, a lawyer, you know, um, being super successful and believing you could do whatever you want and not experiencing losing everything yet. More like um, most of the people I think that were in there that it seemed to um, um, that seemed to do better with it were people that were struggling with why they had to quit um, and more like their family needing them to and you know um, not people who were super broken because it was so like they would sit us down and make us the entire group so this is 60 people all say something negative to like if it was my turn I'd have 59 people criticize me that sort of thing and they would bring in your family and they would all tell you how your um, addiction had affected them. And you weren't allowed to defend yourself or say anything. Um, now, in some people's case, these were people who had really abused them over the years that were the reason that that they were there, right? So to listen to them tell you how horrible you are, it just wasn't it wasn't beneficial and effective is what I'm saying. Yeah, that wasn't sound like it at all. It wasn't like we weren't, there wasn't a lot of support. Um, I remember telling a story of when I was sitting in group one day of my friend who had killed himself when I was in college, somebody I was very close to. Um, and uh, they told me I was rambling and that they weren't interested and it had nothing to do with anything. Like this was instead of going, okay, is that something that led to, like, they didn't look into anything like that at all. There was no empathy. There was people who talked about um, childhood sexual assaults and incest and like this sort of stuff. And they were told to stop crying. Like, you weren't allowed to hand somebody a box of Kleenex. That was considered caretaking. They had to get their own Kleenex. Like, things like that. And I didn't understand it. And for a lot of people, it just wasn't. There were was some people whose egos needed a bit of a knockdown. Um, I think we're all individuals and different people. I think there is a different, everybody has their own program in my belief. For some people, that's 12 step. Um, for some people, that's, you know, yoga and meditation and da da da. Um, for other people, uh, it's for me, it's community and connection. And I definitely wasn't getting community and connection there. I was getting understand how horrible you are. Um, admit that you're powerless well yeah I absolutely am powerless that's pretty obvious from from my life right it wasn't it wasn't hard for me to do that those first steps of 12 step right so anyway when I went to the government funded treatment it was all women and it was much more supportive um and it wasn't a matter of um admitting I couldn't run my life it was a matter of having any sort of belief in myself that I actually could do better and do well and um and do this on my own um because I didn't really believe I could get well at that point um I struggled in and out of rehab um I think then I made it all the way to the on that one the last weekend and then we were free to go out and about in the city and that was my old stomping grounds I used to the pizza place I managed was two blocks from that hospital where that rehab was and I was right back there. And on the last weekend, once again, I think what I was doing was I was sabotaging it so that if I didn't quite finish it, if I didn't finish the program, then I didn't need to succeed or, succeed or fail. If I had done it all, I just got myself kicked out, right? Um, where did I go from there? Do you want to ask me something or should I keep talking? <laughs> no, uh, no. <clears throat> if I had a question, I was going to say, 
let's start talking sobriety. When did you decide sure. that you needed to get sober? Like what happened? Okay. So to summarize, over um the next however many years, um, I eventually ended up on the street. And I was in Victoria in British Columbia, and I ended up all by myself. Everybody I knew had distanced themselves from me. And I was standing on a street corner addicted to mainlining cocaine. And I was on methadone. Um, and the and I was selling my body in order to pay for for my drugs. And I was absolutely insane. I didn't speak for a year and a half. Um, I only had, and I was basically getting paid to be molested every day. That was, that was how I got enough money to poison myself, to make myself more insane. Um, I lived in a complete and utter hellish other world mentally. Um, I had been traumatized by the police a lot, like getting beat up, even though I was this tiny thing with no criminal record. I actually did end up with a charge for stealing food when we hadn't eaten in a week. That's it. That's all I have on my record. And I was out there for, I was on the street for five years. Um, and then I was out again later. But the first time that I got clean was in 2006. Um, and it was because I finally realized that it was always going to get worse. I had hepatitis C and um, I had lost, I didn't have uh, ownership over my body. It belonged to the people that abused it every day. Um, I had, I was really sick. Like I said, I had hep C. I don't know how I, I stayed horseshoes up my butt because I don't know how I managed to not get HIV um, or not um, get killed or raped more or whatever it was um but it was psychological um the first time that i cleaned up because um i recognized that in some ways i had gotten addicted to surviving the things i thought were were happening which was basically armageddon and the end of the world um and was what i like thought was happening and then i thought was survive i was surviving and then i needed to save the planet and like just so far gone um, and every time I didn't really believe I was on earth anymore. I didn't believe that, um, my body was mine. Like it, it just, I can't even begin to explain, like, I so was so like, far away from reality. Sounds like you were what? losing your mind. I mean, you were losing your mind. I had, I had totally lost it and it wasn't coming back. It was like when I slept, I wasn't waking up. Okay. And then going back into there. I was just, um, that's, that's where I was and you couldn't communicate with me and I couldn't, it was getting really hard to support myself even with sex work because who I was attracting were predators because I was so anxiety ridden and terrified like all day long, every day that it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't something attractive. <laughs> it, so who was coming to me were people who were attracted to that vulnerability um, and attracted to terrified, basically. So they were people who just wanted to use and abuse and hurt me. And I won't say in sex work, it's not always like that. Um, there are definitely, um, I respect sex work. And if you do it with strong boundaries, um, 
there's definitely a place where it's mutually beneficial. And I don't think it's totally unhealthy. But where I was at, that was survival sex, which is totally different. Um, and I was so far gone, there was no way I could have boundaries. So I was um, hating myself for what I was letting people do to me every day. And there was nobody to blame but myself. Like, that's just who I am. I wasn't blaming my parents or the Johns or anything like that. It was me that I was hating more and more. But I started to fear that I was so far gone that something was going to happen and I wouldn't, like someone else was going to get hurt, like a child, um, that I would think I was saving. Like sometimes I would look, I would see a child blocks away and I usually went the other way if I saw kids outside because um, I didn't want to get near them. I didn't want them to see me or feel my energy or anything. I wanted to protect them from what I was enduring. And I started to fear that like there would be a child that I thought was being abused because my concept of what was happening anywhere was totally different from what was really going on. And that I would somehow like hurt this child thinking I was helping them. Or I would like jump out of a car thinking that I had to because the car was going to blow up or something ridiculous. And that I would like land on a child or another person or something like this and hurt them. Like this is what I started what I started fearing was that something really bad was going to happen. Um, and someone else, I didn't care about myself anymore, but I was worried that someone else was going to get hurt because I so didn't know what was real and what wasn't. Um, I expected reality to tear open and like the air to literally open up and it would be like, Hey, this is what's really happening. You you're just dreaming. Um, you're just imagining all of this or it's like the matrix or something like this and you're really like paralyzed in a hospital room or like something like this um so I asked my partner who ended up being my partner of 11 years but um at the time I basically begged him and said if I if we don't get clean um I'm going to be in the psych and I've been in the psych ward a number of times I'm going to literally be sitting in a psych ward for the rest of my life drooling. That'll be best case scenario. And worst case scenario is I will be in jail because I accidentally killed someone or something. And I'm not a violent person. I just thought an accident was going to happen, that sort of thing. So I didn't really feel like I had a choice. I started to realize it can always get worse. You always have something to lose. So even though I had lost school and job and belongings and friends and like everything that made me me, um, including my, my, I'd lost my mind and I'd lost my body and I'd lost, I was down to basically my name and nothing else. And I was fiercely trying to protect that name every day because I was terrified that it was being taken away as well. So um, I started to realize it's, there's always, even if you don't even know what it is, there's something you're going to lose. And the only thing that I had left was my core, my core ethic of not intentionally harming someone else. So I've had that my whole life. And I have, of course, I've done stupid things that have hurt people. I've stolen from people in my addiction and, um, and it hurt my family that I was hurting myself. But I mean, I've never punched someone in the face or, you know what I mean? I've never, physically abused someone or sexually abused someone or um I've never intentionally gone I want you to hurt and caused another person pain and that was probably one of the only things I had left and I started to get paranoid 
that I didn't know what I was doing. So if I reached out my hand and did this and I thought there was no one there, well, reality was so messed up. What if someone really was there and I really was hurting someone? Like this was the kind of thing that was happening. This was how how fragile my mind was. So I begged him um, to help me get clean. And um, I needed him to be clean in order for me to get clean. And he did. And he is still clean and sober to this day. Um, I went back to rehab that year. Um, it took six months of being clean until I could hold a conversation. That's how um, my, how bad my mental health was. Six months until I actually believed that I was on earth and that this was real and um Tell my senses, till trees looked like trees and music sounded the same and things looked the same as they had before my mental breakdown um, because my senses, everything was so different. I didn't, it didn't look like earth anymore. So it was six months before I felt like I was rooted in the real world again and could actually communicate with other people without reading something into everything they said and hearing some completely different meaning than what they were actually saying to me. So it's kind of a miracle I'm, I even made it back. And I then we did it with 12 step. And Damn, it, it sounds it, like you were on the verge of psychosis, basically. I was in complete psychosis. So the first time they called it um that it happened to me, they called it amphetamine induced psychosis. And then um the second time around, because I was in psych wards and had a lot of drug counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists and rehab and all this stuff throughout the years. And so the first time they called it amphetamine-induced psychosis, and the second time they called it cocaine-induced schizophrenia, um, because I heard voices 24-7, and I, I didn't just have auditory hallucinations, I had, and visual hallucinations, I had tactile hallucinations, so I could feel people touching me, even though there was no one there, so... This was because my boundaries have been crossed so badly with sex work, um, that I, I could feel things happening to me that weren't actually happening to me and see them and hear them. And, and so, so this realer than reality, it became a, impossible to tell the difference. So um, I, I, it was it was 24-7 terrifying. And a part of me thinks that um, I was getting addicted to um, the fear the fear hormones, the fear brain chemicals as well. And getting, I was getting addicted to surviving it, to surviving these things that I thought were happening. Um, and really it just came from coming down. And, um, but I didn't ever, like I said, I didn't actually fully come down until I totally quit. And then it took about six months to start to heal. I start to, I, I like to think of it as like the ozone layer that the earth has. I had like a personal ozone layer around me and it was so... I had a big hole in my ozone layer from all of the drugs that I did. All of the meth, all of the coke, all of the heroin, all of the everything that I did. It burned this big hole in me. And so I was really open to uh, spiritually, to other entities, etc. And then my psychosis um, couldn't understand all the information that I was receiving um, and turned it with being... Um, Claire audience, which is basically um, so Claire audience and auditory hallucinations. Um, there's like a controversial debate about what is what, right? And one is actually 
um, hearing things from beyond and elsewhere. And one is your brain coming up with them in their own, right? Um, things that aren't real. So I think there was, I think both were happening to me. Like, in other words, I was, the breakdown around me was, I'm an empath. And so I was open to what was happening with other people around me and in the space that I was in and the energy of anywhere I was. Um, but I was so unhealthy that it turned into this entire delusional world. So we got well, we got well, and we were, we were good. Um, I had to swallow my overachiever pride and work in Tim Hortons and, um, you know, have this part-time job in a coffee shop with people who didn't, um, who were the same, who people that came from jail or people that were new to the country or, you know, people that, um, and teenagers, <laughs> that was who I worked with in the beginning to like, um, have a, uh, I went to this program called peers, it was prostitutes, empowerment and education resource society. And they did, um, we did uh, transferable skills. So when you are a sex worker, you have sales skills, you have self-defense skills, um, you're innovative, you're, you know, all these, like they helped you figure out what it was that um, you could take from that and use elsewhere, right? So that it wasn't like all for naught. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and they had me working in um, like at a thrift store and stuff. And then I ended up working at Tim Hortons and um, my partner was really supportive. Um, I kept him at arm's length when you're a sex worker, like opening your heart and closing your heart for protection, opening. It doesn't really happen. Him and I were really more um, really close friends and I wouldn't be alive to this day without him. Um, in 2012, my um, dad died and I relapsed and I think I had a bunch of other excuses. I call them excuses because I used them as excuses to go back out. Yes, I was going through some heavy things in my life, but that doesn't mean I had the tools to get through it. I didn't need to start using again, but I did. I started smoking uh, crack. Uh, I don't even like saying um, any of this stuff. I've said a lot of substances. I apologize for that. Um, but I started smoking a stimulant again. And he broke up with me uh, to sort of teach me a lesson. And he still was supportive of me, but we weren't in a relationship anymore. And I think I was also trying to get out of the relationship. And I knew that was sort of the way out because we were engaged, but I knew we weren't meant to be married. And I went back out and I started, I went back into sex work as an escort and I started blogging and I was like a top 80 of the hundred sex blogs in 2014 or something like that. Um, I started reviewing adult toys and my intention was go back and get my libido and get my empowerment, like my personal power back um, and take responsibility for myself and, um, for my own personal pleasure and like figuring out a way to heal it. And the only way for me to heal it was to go back in and get it and do it with really strong boundaries. And I started out um, through back pages and Craigslist and stuff doing that. Um, but then I started using again. And one of my boundaries was not poisoning myself with the money that I was making. Um, and this is getting to recovery. Don't worry. Um, I met my partner and my current partner, the father of my child. 
Um, and he's 12 years younger than I am. I was 39 at the time. It was in 2014. And the first, um, I had, I hadn't, I don't think I had kissed anyone in years. It was, it was a boundary of mine with sex work and I hadn't felt any personal pleasure in many years. I'm talking emotionally and physically. It just, um, I was so numb and cold in order to do what I did for a living. And because my previous partner and I were actually just really good friends, but I didn't realize that at the time, I thought I wasn't capable of feeling uh, butterflies in my stomach and all, all these sort of things because I was too broken and damaged and hurt and numb. Um, but him and I, I had a client that wanted to see me with someone else and he was my driver. And I asked him if he would come with me and he kissed me. And the second he kissed me, it was like an Archie comic. My, my um, feet came off the floor and there was like hearts over my head. And it was like, right. And I hadn't felt something that innocent and real and pure and light instead of like intense and heavy and dark. And um, in many years, I didn't even know I was capable of it anymore. And that one, it wasn't like he did it. It was just... The chemistry between us was so pure, really. It was so real. It wasn't bought and paid for, and it wasn't it wasn't under substances or anything like this. It was just he had a crush on me, and I didn't know it, and he kissed me, and it was very sweet and wonderful. And that was the, oh, there's still a piece of me inside there. There's still, I can still have me, not whatever this thing I've turned myself into with everything I've taken away from myself. And I said to him, are we just having fun or do you want to be my boyfriend? And he said, oh, I want to be your boyfriend. I said, really? With what I do for a living? And, you know, he said, yeah, it's okay sort of thing. And I said, do you want to be a parent? Because my partner of 12 years couldn't have kids. Not that we had any right having children the way we were living. And he said, I want to be a dad more than anything. And all of a sudden, I realized that I, it might actually be possible for me to be a mother, um, which I had given up on years before that. I was 39. I had just met him. This was the very first time we had ever slept together. And I was like, do you want to have a kid? Do you want to have a baby? And he's like, I do. <laughs> and then we both lay, and I'm like, with me? And he's like, yes. And then we both lay there like, this is insane. This is like a pipe dream, crack dream horribleness there's no way we could be parents um this must be like that time that i got engaged right but we knew we were serious somehow and we were willing i knew from the amount of times i had been to rehab from the amount of education i had on the absolute only way that we were possibly going to achieve any of that was if we changed everything absolutely everything if we left victoria we left those friends and that social word, but world behind. Um, we stopped the sex work. We stopped like everything. We changed our diets. We changed. I got rid of all of the things that I had. You know, it wasn't just like some sort of geographical escape. Like we had to have a program to go to. We had to change absolutely everything. And we did. And we came back to my islands. And my mom, whom I'd had 30 years of strife with, 
said something's different this time I can tell and she let us live with her I don't know how we managed to do that but and um I got pregnant see this is the thing is we didn't we didn't get pregnant and then clean up we cleaned up because I wanted to get pregnant um and I had a miscarriage and we didn't really understand like I kind of, I couldn't even believe I was capable of getting pregnant after the way that I, and I had gone probably eight years without even getting a period or anything. So I didn't think that it was even possible. Once I gained weight and we got healthier and we started, you know, living life differently, we got healthy enough and I got pregnant and people sure didn't believe in it, but it was up to us to, to prove it. Um, that was eight years ago. My daughter it will be seven in April. Um, I don't do 12 step programs now. Um, I totally believe in them. It's just that for me, um, what the, the catalyst of course was being a parent was my child. Um, and, and having, and because of my age, my last chance to have that child and having, um, a healthy relationship and the huge thing, having my mom in my life because my my breakdown with my parents was probably the beginning of it all um and the second I got pregnant my 30 years of fighting with my mom went out the window because it was like well we don't have time for this anymore there's another being coming we need to do nothing but focus on health and she's an herbalist and um, an energy medicine practitioner and all this stuff so you know we just focused on getting us well and taking little tiny baby steps not letting us ourselves um, be in charge of any money. Um, just having as much like support around us as we could and being like ruthlessly honest um, with where we were at. Um, this community, like this a true sense of community is how I continued like through those first years um, and continue to do well today is by, I, um, I started a outreach program on the island in connection with Nanaimo and with the city that uh, we're right by. Um, and so I do harm reduction, I give out harm reduction supplies and um, I don't focus on getting people into recovery because I think I'm a little too jaded. Like I kind of say to people, well, I hope you figure it out before you die. I, I kind of don't think that's gonna happen. Like, and I, that would be the worst thing to say to somebody, right? I don't think I'd be helpful at all. So all I'm saying is it's just not my place to to be that person who's trying to help people into recovery. I, I go one step back and meet people where they're at and make their lives a little less hell, hellish and help them believe in themselves. Like um, I also run a collective uh, for work, for cleaning and landscaping. And so getting people that are struggling like work, that's not sex work, that's not stealing, you know, um, getting them work that doesn't put them at risk, isn't putting them around money, um, isn't putting them right inside people's homes, like cleaning a house after people move out of it, you know, so there's nothing they're going to steal or they're going to, you know, this sort of thing. They're not, I don't believe in setting people up to fail. So um, just meeting people where they're at, supporting them where they're at. So um, like last week I put out a call because I'm not like this government agency or something, I can accept supplements that might have been opened vitamin c or whatever right then somebody opened it and said i don't like grape flavor and now it's sitting in their kitchen now if you are a, a um 
like a nonprofit that's under an umbrella of the local health and stuff, you can't do that. You can't have an open bottle of vitamin C. You can't accept it, right? I, I'm more grassroots. I can do that. So I can give out um, stocks that were already washed that don't still have the tag on them, you know, like this sort of thing, right? So, um, uh, and I also work to connect all the, there's so many things already in places like resources for, for people um, who are struggling mental health wise and addiction wise and all that sort of thing. Um, but they're not, people don't know about them and they don't know how to access them. And they're not sort of like speaking to each other and stuff. So um, I, I help <clears throat> like support people like work wise and then also like helping them with, you know, wool blankets or winter gear or whatever, if they're living outside or helping them access food or this or that, but telling them like actually going to them and saying, here, this is who you talk to if you want to do this and that, right? My, the one program I would really love to be a part of, because I think a lot of my worst traumas happen with police, happen with what police did to me when I was on the street, the abuse that I suffered from them. So um, because I was in such, um, I remember I used to have this little piece of paper that said, I have schizophrenia. Please take that into consideration. It came from my doctor. It was like on a prescription pad. And it said, like, please take that into consideration when you talk to me. Because when I was on the street, people would call the cops and say this. They, they thought they were helping. They'd say, there's this girl pacing. And so what I was doing is I was pacing because I go try to go that way. And well, there was a kid two blocks that way so I'd go the other way and I'd be like oh there's a vortex in another dimension that way I can't go that way like it was ridiculous right I'd and then I'd start walking another way and think oh I just threw the street off balance because I'd feel the whole road tip or something so I would be pacing trying to find the safe way to go and that's all I was doing but they were really worried about me and of course they were right um so somebody like residential, I mean, or whatever, would call the police and say, I think this girl needs help. She looks really scared and she's out there walking back and forth. But when the police came, they would hogtie me and sit on me and, you know, smash my head against the cop car. And like, just the thing was, I was so broken. I was so scared of them. I thought they were werewolves and like, it, it just, it was horrible, but their treatment of me was based on their own education and the other people that they had, um, you know, it's, I can't even get into that, but what I would like, what I would love, there's programs out there where you can go along with the police to mental health calls. So if somebody is having a breakdown, whether it's drug induced or not, um, so that it's not made worse you can go as sort of like a go-between. So as long as it's not like a guns involved, this is Canada, okay? So as long as we don't have like, you're not in a position where like someone's going to get shot or whatever, that you can go and sort of be the go-between to, hey, let me try and like talk this person down first before you, before you attack them and break their arm and, you know, all this sort of thing. And I would absolutely love that. I think probably the easiest, you know, complete psychotic, breakdown I had was the ambulance got called and the ambulance attendants came and they sat down across the street from me and they just sat down and they started talking to one another and they they were watching me out of their corner of the eye and I knew that if I ran they would tackle me and they would probably call the police so I didn't do that but I just I remember I walked back and forth until I finally started to calm down and understand that I wasn't in the situation I thought I was in 
Um, and they were there to make sure I was okay and that I didn't affect anyone else. Um, and that was so vastly different from the trauma I experienced when I was physically assaulted by the police and what that did to me, like psychologically, um, because, normally because of what I thought was happening. Because regardless of whether it's happening or you think it's happening, you're going to have the trauma of it actually happening if you fully believe that that's what's happening. So I would really like to be like an advocate for um, people that are that are going through that um, to try and reduce the harm. So harm reduction isn't just Narcan kits, which I do give out and um, drug paraphernalia and all that stuff so that you're not um, so you're less susceptible to uh, HIV and Hep C and all that. Like that's all a certain level of harm reduction, but it's also reducing the harm to the community reducing the harm to the families of people that are going through this, um, reducing it's, it's all over the place. Like the same with, like I said, the um, helping people find healthy work. Um, that's part of harm reduction. Um, so I do that, <laughs> but I probably like the biggest part for my own recovery is giving to my community every day um, as much as I can. And um, I, I, I clean for a living. I run the housekeeping department in a hotel and I have a collective so that I don't have to lay people off when we're not in the tourist season. Um, I help get them jobs and like cleaning jobs in the community. And then they, they come back here and there's such a difference in rate and everything. So anyway, I balance it all. We all support one another and help each other. And um, that's really what keeps me clean and sober. Um, is con is being needed by other people because I'm helping other people and I'm giving all the time. I've made all these connections of all these people that are expecting me to show up. I can't just disappear or screw up or whatever because there's people that need me and people that are expecting me. Um, and that had to be baby steps. If I had taken that on in the beginning, it would have been overwhelming and I would have ran, right? Um, but the humility that I gained in my darkest, deepest years um, of understanding that no matter, you really can't judge somebody else and what they're going through because until you've experienced, you know, their own perspective and their own world, you just, you have no idea. All the things I thought I would never do, I did except one, which was intentionally hurting someone else. Um but otherwise I did, I mean, and I did, I stole from people. I did all this for a thing, but I didn't do it to hurt them. I did it and ignored the fact that I was hurting them. Right. Um, but yeah. So again towards, <laughs> the end, again, towards the end here, let me ask you one last question. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Um, I guess that like depends on you know where you're coming from and your perspective um but I guess just like I just said like connection whatever that means for you um whether that means connecting to to somebody that's struggling or whether you're the one struggling um whether that's connecting to a church or connecting to a 12-step or connecting to um friends or like-minded people or whether it's online or it's in person or it's it's making connections and not isolating um, is, is probably whichever side of it you're on. I absolutely 100% believe that that's the, the key to 
to us growing and thriving and learning and loving and all that stuff. Because, I mean, the way that I destroyed myself was by disconnecting. Uh, I disconnected more and more and more and more. And and finding something in common with others and making connections on any level um, is is crazy strong. Yeah, connection is a huge thing. Community is very, very clutch. Yeah. It's good to have the right Whichever support. Whichever way you do it. Absolutely. Yeah, support system is absolutely key to, I, I believe to people's recovery and if you don't like in today's day and age if you don't have it around where you live or you don't have it with your family like it doesn't necessarily have to be that you have to connect you know to your family if your family isn't is toxic and isn't healthy for you that's not where to do it and it doesn't have to be done religiously or this way or that way like and but sometimes it is exactly where you do it just because it doesn't work in one place i absolutely believe that Every type of recovery program there is out there, um, and there's a lot of them. There's like Life Ring and Smart Recovery, and they're not all um, religion based. And of course, there are religious based ones for those that don't have religion trauma in their backgrounds, or you know, wherever you can find belief in something um, beyond yourself. And for me, that's community. That's my higher power is community. Um, is is a key yeah all right thanks for letting me talk <laughs> no problem let me say thank you for coming on the podcast it's been an awesome interview how do you feel i feel good um yeah i feel weird about all the substances i mentioned in the beginning but that's okay it is what it is yeah. but that's the thing it's like it started out as these little bits and pieces and then it just went swirled and spiraled downwards so fast until it was way lower than I ever thought it could be and believing that I could actually get out of that um was the hardest thing in the world so you know for me it was a mother but what that meant was something even if I couldn't believe in me I could believe in something outside of me um until I was strong enough to believe in me and love me, which is always a, a work in progress, of course, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, always a work in progress. Yeah. All right, do me a favor, hang time with your little sales pitch for the podcast. So okay. everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, TikTok, Instagram. You name it, we're most likely on it. I also suggest checking out our website. That's www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you find plenty of free resources and free literature. Also, we have a book coming out. Should be due out hopefully by the end of the month. It's called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. Um, if not the end of this month, hopefully sometimes early next month. So I'll keep you posted on that. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and until next time. Thank you.